Amen. Well, good morning. It's beautiful out, isn't it? Be cool if we like did church outside. I don't know. Just kind of an idea I thought of. Just kidding. Um, I just wanted to read a really familiar psalm. I'm sure you know most of you have heard it. If not, in your own reading, uh, it's really popular psalm that's you know read it literally every funeral and I'm sure you've you know heard it in a movie or read it on your own like I said but it's Psalm 23 and uh, this next song we're gonna sing is is pretty much almost word-for-word in Psalm 23 and uh, I wanted to I I played it before but it's been a really long time and um, just kind of looking through our song list here this week and I really felt like the Lord wanted us to sing it this morning um, I actually wrote this song probably, I don't know, four years ago, um, and one of the hardest times in my life. Uh, my youngest daughter was born with uh, just some difficulties and um, some facial de- uh, deformities, and uh, it was really one of those dark night of the soul moments for me in my life. And I remember sitting on my front porch one morning, listening to this podcast on Psalm 23, um, and the guy that was uh, doing the podcast, he, he called these moments in our life, these dark night of the soul moments in our lives, uh, these even though moments. You know, in Psalm 23, it reads, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so that really resonated with me. I, I felt like I was going through one of these even though moments in my life. And the cool thing about this podcast and the cool thing about Psalm 23 that, you know, we've read it so much, we've heard it so much, uh, we, we might lose um, some of the awesome things about this chapter. Well, one of the main awesome things about this chapter is this fact that even though we have these moments in our lives, there's all of these promises in Psalm 23 that the Lord gives us. Um, the, the fact that God is our shepherd, that he's guiding us, he's with us, he cares for us. Um, the fact that there is nothing that we need or lack when we are in the Lord. The fact that the, the promise that we are going to be laid down in his, pa- his green pastures by still waters. The fact that uh, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Um, those are promises. If you're going through one of those moments right now this morning... Those are promises that you can cling on to, that give you hope and strength to um, help you weather that storm, to help you work through that dark night of your soul, that even though moment of your life. And so I'm just going to read this here, and then we're going to sing this song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.
No 
thank you that you are with us. Lord, thank you in the high moments of our lives, the mountaintop moments, and in the valley moments. Lord, you are with us, guiding us and leading us, protecting us, providing for us. Father, thank you that your goodness, Lord, and your mercy is not only filling our cups, but overflowing, Lord. Lord, we pray for those in this room, God, and those in our lives who are walking through these moments right now. And we pray you would make yourself very aware to them, your presence, very aware to them. Help them to know that you're right there with them. Father, we love you and we sing to you, we worship you, and we praise you for all that you've done in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. can take a seat and kids you uh, can go to your classes now good morning Linworth how we doing good good well welcome and uh, to those of you that are watching online, also welcome to our service here this morning. And uh, this is your first Sunday here. We want to welcome you and uh, glad that you're joining us and uh, spending this time with us. Uh, one of the things we like to do immediately is we begin, uh, before we get our announcements is uh, let you know about a thing called a Connect Card. It looks like this here. It's right in front of you, especially if you are new with us. We'd love for you to just go ahead and grab that, begin filling that out. Um, with your information and then there's some places there if you want some more information you can mark and um, if you drop that in our uh, uh, we have some boxes in the back lobby there you can drop them there or you can also fill that online on the Bible app as you follow along with the service and uh, if you are first-time visitor we want to invite you over to our welcome table we have a nice little gift bag for you we got a coffee cup in there and some information about the church uh, so you maybe get to know us just a little bit more. So we appreciate you doing that. Um, we always welcome from everybody any prayer requests, anything going on in your life that you'd want us to know about, that we can pray about, uh, any questions you might have, please use the Connect card and uh, so we can get back in touch with you. And we definitely, uh, the pastors, as we mentioned to you, each Friday morning we gather together and we pray. And so we just uh, appreciate that uh, if you could communicate with us with that card. Okay, we have two things we just want to bring to your attention here this morning. The first one is called a Get Connected Lunch. And basically what this is, uh, um, you know, the, the past couple of years obviously been pretty interesting and we just haven't had any uh, opportunities, as many opportunities uh, to gather with those of you who have been uh, a little bit new with the church or have been coming for a while. And, and also, to, uh, with a little bit of a challenge, how do I get connected with Linworth? And so we're calling this Get Connected because we'd love for you to come and we'd just like to share with you um, our vision. We'd like to share with you some of the ministries and things that are happening here, uh, introducing you to um, our life groups, uh, an opportunity also for you to meet some of the staff pastors will be there. 
And uh, so if you've been coming for a little while and you, you want to ask some questions about how to get connected or just meet us, uh, we want to invite you to this Get Connected lunch. And especially if you're also brand new, you're, you're just visiting and uh, you want to get to know us, uh, why don't you go ahead and sign up for this Get Connected lunch. There's a, um, on the Bible app, there's a registration link. You can uh, do that or write Get Connected on the Connect card. And therefore, we'll make sure we have some of these amazing looking I'm not sure what type of sandwich that is. Actually, we'll do a little bit better than that, okay? For you, just kidding. But uh, if you could go ahead and uh, sign up for that, that would be, that'd be awesome. We'd love to, to meet so many of you in a different environment. That'd be great. Okay, second one is uh, evangelism. Uh, seven Keys to Effective Evangelism. That's on March 26th. Um, and so this is basically connected with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But sometimes we just don't know how to start, what to do, what to say. And so this is a, just an opportunity for you to dip your toe in the water and begin to learn some of these things. And so uh, it's a great class. We've put it on multiple times. So that's on March 26th. And we're asking you if you're interested in going to that, if you go ahead and mark on your Connect card, um, just write evangelism on the card. And then once you can drop it into the boxes in the lobby. Um, so, all right, that's all we have for this morning. Uh, Pastor Chris is going to come up and continue in our series in First uh, Kings. Good morning, everybody. I got here a little early this morning, so I stopped at Tim Hortons to get some oatmeal. They don't make oatmeal anymore. I don't know what's up with that. They don't serve. Well... Yeah, I really liked it. So I, I got the next healthiest thing on the menu. What? I got, I got an apple fritter. Apple fritter. Very good for you. Very good for you. You know, um, uh, one of the things that I enjoy about being a follower of Jesus and also being a part of this particular church is that because one of our values locally and globally We'd be engaged locally, but we'd also be involved globally. And throughout my three decades here, it's just been so cool that when things are going on around the world, we saw this recently with uh, some of you serving and helping in Afghanistan, and, um, uh, uh, but also what's going on in Ukraine right now. And um, Alex prayed for Ukraine last week. I want to share a little bit more this week. And let's start, Andrew, if we could get that photo up here. So I want to introduce you to someone. I'm sorry that's not more clear, but this is a great friend of Linworth named Robbie McAllister. And uh, actually, Robbie will be here the last Sunday of August. So he's going to speak. And as you know, Robbie's been very involved with refugees, very involved in what's going on around the world. And he'll do our leaders retreat the day before and will speak to us the last Sunday of August. But Robbie... Uh, was the link for us after the collapse of the Soviet Union to be engaged with the country of Ukraine. And so for five to six years in the middle 90s to the early 2000s, we sent teams virtually every year. Um, I went multiple times. I think Doug is here. Doug went virtually, Doug Riggle. Doug went virtually every time. And Robbie was the link. We were supporting their church planting efforts. There were two uh, churches planted there. We have one a particular connection to the Church of Almaz, which is where we were meeting a lot of these 
younger people who were getting saved and coming to Christ after the collapse of communism or the Soviet Union there. And they are the leaders today of the Church of Almas. And uh, so now I've not kept up as strong a connection, but Doug certainly has. And this picture is actually taken at our pastor's conference last week. It was in Miami, Florida. That was nice. It wasn't hard to go there. It was in Miami, but the invasion, I think, took place on a, was it a Thursday morning. We had just gotten in the night before, and Robbie is updating us the next morning with what is happening in Ukraine. And Robbie and a couple other of our friends that have been very engaged in the work there at Ukraine. Some of you know Jack Stockdale. Jack was there. These poor guys were just shell-shocked. They were in tears. They were besides themselves. Uh, they have been engaged. Their friends, their people that they love, were their lives are being thrown in utter uh, upside down and, and um, great danger and harm. Um, and so Robbie was able that next morning to update us with uh, direct sources from the Ukraine with what is happening. Other thing I wanted to mention there, just as far as our, again, our connection, Doug, as I said, where are you, Doug? I, where are you? You're, you're sitting somewhere else. You're not, I saw you're here somewhere. I saw you earlier. That's okay. But uh, yeah, I just, um, uh, Doug on our first trip is where he got the vision for orphan world relief when he saw the incredible needs of orphans in Ukraine at that point with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was no infrastructure. There was absolutely no infrastructure. And there were parents sending out their five and six-year-olds to do sex to earn money for the family. Literally, literally. And Doug's heart was broken. It was broken and that was the beginning of Orphan World Relief. And um, Jeremiah's Hope, which is one of the orphanages that OWR supports, uh, it is north of Kiev. They're still safe. Uh, Doug is worried about another uh, of their projects, another of their orphanages is actually in, is in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, called the Harbor, and they no longer have access to state funds. So, but for the moment, Jeremiah's Hope is still can get funds and is still doing well. Um, the families, the, the men that I mentioned earlier who became pastors in Spring of Hope, Andre, Sasha, Kola, all of their families are safe for the moment. The Church of Almaz was doing, for the first 10, 11 days, was doing incredible things, providing food, shelter, sharing, there's Doug, hey Doug, talking about you. Um, uh, sharing the gospel, um, uh, providing food, shelter for of families there in Kiev, and Doug just told me this morning that they are going to have to evacuate that church as well. So um, it's dire, it's awful. What Putin done is a terrible, evil thing. Terrible and evil. The fact that he's shutting off uh, information to his own people and changing the narrative tells you what, how important the freedom of the press is and what can happen when a state government just completely controls the narrative, it's a terrible thing. And I would pray for the Russian people and pray for Ukraine, and really what we need is the Russian people themselves to rise up and to depose this very, very uh, evil murderer. And um, so continue to pray, 
please, again, and particularly, you can pray for Andre and Sasha and Cola and their families. You can pray for Jeremiah's Hope. Those are some places to start. And again, I'm identifying Doug here because he's a great source of information if you'd like to have connection to what's going on. And I think we didn't announce it this morning, but we are going to do a bake sale here, I think, beginning, I think, next week or one or two weeks from now. And all the funds from the bake sale will go to Jeremiah's Hope. So if you want food, you can give. If you don't want the food, you can still give. But um, there's a very practical way, again, that you can give to an organization that we know, where we know the funds will be used to help um, disadvantaged and hurting children. And so, again, the next week or two, you can, uh, you can do that. So, okay. All right, I think it's, well, let's, yeah, let's go ahead and take a moment and collectively here as the people of God, let's pray for Ukraine. Father, we lift up the brothers and sisters that we know that are suffering, that are afraid, that are in harm's way. And we pray for their safe exit from the country, those that are trying to leave the country. For those that determine to stay, Father, we ask you, please protect them. And we ask you to bring a stop to this terrible war, this terrible war against humanity, against the Ukrainian people. Lord, I remember how deeply they love their culture. They love their culture. They have such a deep and rich history, Father. And I pray that even in this moment that many, that there would be a revival with many coming to Jesus as a safe refuge. Lord, we are affected by what goes on in the world. We know that Ukraine's not the only place. There have been many other places throughout the world, Lord, where there have been terrible acts of war and violence. We know that there's many places, Lord, we can be lifting up. And we even pray, Lord, as the, the world seems to be just dangerous things are, are threatened. And we, we pray, Father, that cooler heads would prevail. That, uh, Lord, that ways of peacemaking would prevail. Jesus, we remember your words, blessed are the peacemakers. We pray that, Father, that peacemaking would prevail in this conflict. We've seen, Lord, how uh, those on peacemaking missions in the past, in the name of Christ, have, have done and seen remarkable things happen around the world. We pray that the principles of Jesus, whether they come from his followers or whether they are adopted by decision makers, would end the conflict and the prevention of more lives, more destruction. We pray especially, Lord, for the elderly. We pray for the disabled. We pray for young children. Lord, we pray for the ill and the sick. Lord, um, I heard the story of a, a older uh, husband and wife that they simply are not able to leave their apartment, and yet they are in harm's way, but they are not physically able to leave. Father, there must be so many stories like that. We pray that, Lord, you would protect the vulnerable, protect the children, disabled, the elderly, the ill. 
the orphan. Lord, so many are in orphanages, Lord. We pray for their protection of the vulnerable. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Okay. All right. Amen. Thank you for, for praying with us in that. Keep praying. Okay. Um, hey, if you're new here, we are walking through one of the books of the Bible. It's what we typically do. And we are right now in an Old Testament book called First Kings. It is a book that spans 450 years of Israel's history. It begins with King Solomon and ends in the siege and the sack of Jerusalem and the exile of the people. It's an epic start and a sad conclusion. There's no Disney ending here. Now, the opening chapters are devoted to Solomon. And in the first week, we covered the rocky transition from his father, David. In the second week, we studied Solomon's moving and heartfelt prayer as a young man in his 20s. A prayer not for wealth or legacy, but wisdom to serve others. A prayer that pleased the Lord. Then last week, Rich took us through Solomon's greatest feat as a king, the building of the temple. The heartbeat of Jewish worship, iconic. It was an ancient marvel of architecture and beauty. When completed, the glory of God came and filled the temple. It meant that the presence of God was with them. Today we're going to cover chapters 9 through 11, the final segment of Solomon's life. And ironically, his life mirrors the flow of the book. A tremendous start, a disastrous ending. Let me uh, just give you a very simple outline here. Uh, chapter 9 is the rise. Chapter 10 is the rise to the world stage. And chapter 11 is the fall. And then after that, we'll build a bridge to our culture and our time to see what insight we can gain. And I want to begin this morning right where Rich left off. After the temple was dedicated, after the glory of God came and filled the temple, God appears to Solomon again. This is a visual appearance. This is not just a routine Sunday morning or Wednesday evening meeting. It only happens twice in his life. And we can read about it in chapter 9. And as I read... Just try to take note of what God says to Solomon. Will you stand and we'll read this passage here. This is chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. It's page 290 if you're using the Bible in front of you. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised 
David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you are your children, and do not keep my commandments or my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house, this magnificent feat of architecture, this magnificent house, God says, will become a heap of ruins. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Go ahead, take a seat. Before I pray here and dedicate this scripture to us, what is God saying to Solomon? He is giving him two clear choices. There is a promise of blessing if he is faithful, if he walks in the way of his father David, but things will not go well if he is faithless, if he turns away. So here at the midpoint of his life, some at this time are having a midlife crisis. But Solomon is coming off the greatest accomplishment of his life. At this midpoint of his life, at the midpoint of his reign, the God of grace appears to him again and reminds him of the path to walk on. Okay, now let's, let's pray and commit this to Jesus. Father, so we come before you now as a as your people, as the people of God, we come before you. We believe that your spirit is here with us. We believe that it is a spirit of God that uses the word of God to shape us into the image of Jesus. And that is our prayer this morning. That will take place. We will be shaped more into the image of Christ, both as individuals, but also corporately as a body of Christ, as the people of God. In Christ's name we pray, and the people of God say, amen, amen, amen. amen. Okay, all right, chapter 9. So the rest of chapter 9 shows Solomon doing kingly things. The things that kings do. Primarily, building, building, building. He is like Ohio State before there was Ohio State. There is always building in progress. Five times, build or building appears in this chapter. He built ships. And wealth is pouring into Israel by the boatloads. Literally and figuratively. He built houses and cities. His cities are in strategic places to protect Israel and also at key trade routes. Literally, all of the ancient powers would pass through those trade routes and undoubtedly paid a healthy fee. If they charged like the Pennsylvania Turnpike, that explains Solomon's wealth a lot. But Solomon has not forgotten his kingly duties. <laughs> Look at verse 25. He's not forgotten God. 1 Kings 9, 25. 
Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them. So he fulfilled the temple obligations. Okay, let's go to chapter 10. In chapter 10, now is the rise to the world stage. This is a remarkable chapter. It details the wealth that is pouring into Israel from every direction. Solomon has gold he does not know what to do with. He made gold-plated vessels to drink from. He has so much gold that silver is reduced to pocket change. He develops his military defenses. He multiplies chariots and horses and becomes even a middleman in the selling of horses. There is peace on his borders. As we said a few weeks ago, everyone sits under their own vine, tending their own fig tree, an idiom for peace and security. They are experiencing our internet boom of the 90s and then some. And the world wants to check it out. Exhibit A, of the world coming to Israel, coming to Solomon to learn their secret, is a queen from Sheba. Now, Sheba was in southern Arabia. It's a pre-Islamic kingdom. And to get there, she builds this large party with camels and people and officers of her kingdom and brings tons of gifts and spices. I would have liked to have had some of those spices. Now, I know I said this was a pre-Muslim nation, but I've been to Qian in China, uh, and there is the, in the Muslim quarter there, in the Muslim quarter, which uh, Arabia would, uh, has a, a route to, man, some of the spices there were unbelievable. So this was some good food that they were now cooking. You know how long that trip was? 1,500 miles on the back of a camel. That is essentially from New York to Kansas. It's crazy. And her response, as we'll see, may be a clue that it was not only Disneyland she was seeking, but the God of Israel. Jesus seems to underscore her as a spiritual seeker when he speaks of her in Matthew's Gospel chapter 12. So when, when she meets with Solomon, the first thing they do, this is so cool, they do a little back and forth of mind jousting, which was the way that despots of old tested one another's greatness and mental acuity. It's like the majority of my family members now <laughs> who begin every day. You know how they begin every day? Like while I'm studying God's word? They are beginning every day with Wordle and Nerdle. And then they share their puzzles to see who got it in the least amount of tries. Now, one of my daughters-in-law, from the one from Michigan, and I, we refuse to get involved. It's like a cult, really. Take us off the family thread we protested, Amber and I. Start your own separate thread. They did. After the mind test, 
Solomon took Sheba on a grand tour. And here's what the narrator reports her response to be in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 10. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Now get this, verse 9. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you to maintain, to be, made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Israel was called to be a witness to the nations of the Gentile nations of the Lord's love. Now, Bible readers who are alert to this thread, remembering that the Bible is one unified story leading to Jesus. When we read it as a unified story, we recognize something's going on here. We can identify this and we grasp this as revealing the missional heart of God. And the queen's heart has been impacted by the God of Israel, even calling him, breaking trends from the way God's reviewed, calling him an eternal God. That's remarkable. Now I know that or maybe that as you're listening to this, that all the wealth and all the opulence can be a turnoff for us. And, and indeed, the extent of it does raise a question about Solomon's integrity according to what the law prescribed for kings. But we have to try to see this through the ancient world. What the Queen of Sheba recognized was a manifestation of exceptional wisdom, wealth, effective administration, beauty, joy in the people, and it so captured her heart that she reflected on the source of it all and gave glory to God. Now, why did I say the Queen, the queen of Sheba was only Exhibit A? Look at verse 23. Here the narrator draws a conclusion saying, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Whole world, the whole known world, the ancient Near East. The Holy Spirit wants I, us, I believe, to see that the prayer Solomon prayed way back in chapter three has been answered. Solomon asked for wisdom, for discernment and justice, 
And because he asked for others and not himself, God also promised him wealth and influence. And all has been answered in abundance. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see the great commission in the Old Testament. When God, or when Jesus, in a post-resurrection appearance, when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, that's why we went to Ukraine so many years ago. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, it reveals God's heart to reach every single people group. God's heart to reach every people group has never changed. It worked out differently in the Old Testament, but the purpose was still there. Okay, so we have learned the rise of Solomon and that the rise created a stir in the world. And now finally, chapter 11, the fall. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 11. And this will not be on the screen, so there's quite a few verses here, so it's page 291 in the Bible text. Beginning in chapter 11, King Solomon, however, and that, however, is maybe the saddest word in the whole book. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. FYI, and I'm not sure this even needs to be said this morning, but this is in no way any kind of a blanket condemnation of interracial marriage. This command was specific to the Jews and related to the pure worship of Yahweh. Verse 3 or verse 2, at end of it. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wife led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Do you remember where we started? Remember the appearance of God to Solomon with the warning? Forgotten. Completely forgotten. David had sinned, yes, in a big way, multiple times, but he had never worshiped other gods. He always kept pursuing God. Verse 5. It wasn't just that he sort of gave permission for his wives to worship. Look at what it says about Solomon. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built, here's the builder again, a high place. For Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, these gods overlooked and stood for the worst kinds of violence. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. This is the fall. 
Solomon, who had built the glorious temple, the great desire of his heart as a young king and dedicated it to promote exclusive and wholehearted worship towards Yahweh, not only permits a direct violation to the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and have no idols before him. He not only permits the build, the permits it, he, the consummate builder, even directs the construction and provides the finances for building these pagan worship centers. Look at God's response in verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. And look at what it says, who had appeared to him twice. Notice the contrast. God is angry. Back in chapter 3, God was pleased with his simple faith. The Holy Spirit also seems to be saying, Solomon, most people in this life have to rely on reading what someone else wrote or rely on what someone else experienced as the basis for their faith. Dude, I showed up and appeared to you twice in visual, visceral experiences. And you still forgot. Look at verse 10. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now, we could talk about the adultery or the sexual unfaithfulness of Solomon. But that does not seem to be the writer's intent. Rather, the focus is on how his heart had shifted. Notice how many times the word heart is used or the word love is used. Solomon's affection for God had cooled. Solomon had become a half-hearted follower. Notice, he did not abandon Yahweh completely. But rather, he brings Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God, he brings Yahweh down to the level of a run-of-the-mill, regional, neighborhood God that honestly can't be counted on when the chips are down. The kind of God that we hold in our debt and relate to only on a transactional basis. We don't worship to love. We don't worship to adore. We worship only to receive. And we don't pray in adoration, but rather we demand that this God meet our wants and needs. Solomon married for alliances. Solomon married for geopolitical peace. Solomon married for status. He married for one upsmanship, all in the pattern of near ancient kings. And it seems also that he did try to marry for love. The text says he held fast or clung to them in love. And perhaps Solomon was searching for that always elusive satisfaction through the love of a woman. His writings 
in Ecclesiastes might lead us to that, to that conclusion. Well, in the end, Solomon is dead by 60. 60 or 61 or 62. Actually, what my age is right now. He's dead. God had promised him in his 20s that Solomon, if you walk in my ways, I will lengthen your days. That promise was not realized. And the result for the nation, for the people that he was leading, Solomon's lack of leadership leads to the splitting of the kingdom between Israel and Judah. Disastrous result for the nation. A disastrous result for himself. So what have we learned in these three chapters? What do we see? We see the rise of Solomon. We see his and Israel's rise to the world stage and a golden age, really the best of times for Israel, but it is followed by Solomon's fall. Okay. All right. So what can we gain? What can we learn from this passage? First thing is this. The road to spiritual decay is long and winding. I want to share a verse. I just only planned this this morning, so it's not on your screen. It's in 1 Timothy 5, which is uh, page 993, verse 24. Paul is talking here about uh, pastors and churches and how uh, what, what would happen if, a, uh, if there's some impropriety amongst the pastor and how the congregation, how the body would address that. And Paul says here in verse 24, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, which means hidden, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And the point is, is that sometimes uh, the effect of sin that we do, the effect of small compromises in our lives, it might take decades to show up. Or it might not show up at all, but they'll go before us in judgment. You see, all along the way, through Solomon's life, we get clues that he was slowly straying, very slowly, from Yahweh's commands. We already mentioned the extreme accumulation of wealth in contradiction to the commands for kings found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We see other problems like heavy taxation, the incessant need to build. His palace, get a lot of, the, a lot of you, guys, a lot of you are, are builders, his palace took 13 years to build. It's quite a, quite a place, quite a place. Uh, uh, there was forced labor, enslaved labor. Um, accumulating horses for military preparedness. No need to trust Yahweh. He breaks nearly every command from the Mosaic law for kings. Tim Mackey said this about Solomon, that Solomon had everything going for him, everything. And none of the decisions from early in his life seemed malicious or ill-intended. But slowly, as he went through life, his heart became insensitive. And as a result, the great wisdom 
that once represented a divine gift became an instrument for self-service and self-exaltation. Solomon's life, I believe, friends, for myself, for, for us, it's a siren call. This is a siren call for those of us who believe that we are gifted or believe that we have been successful or believe that we have got everything going for us. How seductive it can be to forget the giver and then to exploit those gifts for our own comfort or for our own pleasure, our own self-service. Mackey goes on. He says, it's a realistic depiction of the same character flaw we saw at work in the story of Saul. Self-deception is by definition impossible to spot on your own. You'll never see yourself going down the road of no return. No one ever sets out to ruin their life on purpose and certainly not to ruin anyone else's. But it happens all the time. What do we do? How do we combat this? What is the to-do from this potential self-deception or long straying road? Well, ironically, we need to do what Solomon had wrote at one time and sadly forgot. Proverbs 4.23. Solomon wrote to his sons, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Another version, which I really like, says, it is the wellspring of life. Your heart is the fountainhead, the source of who you are. And your heart, what it means is, it is your loves. It is your desires. It is your affections. That is the fountainhead of who you are. You are what you love. You will become what you love. If you love money, if you love sex, if you love power or control, then your life trajectory will take on those things. We become, friends, what we worship. We become what we love. What do you love? What drives your heart? It is the fountainhead, the spring of what you will become. And Solomon says, guard that. Guard that heart with everything you have. Do not allow competing thoughts and desires to take allegiance for giving God exclusive and wholehearted love. Solomon had chose idols, actual physical idols of other gods. But we have idols that compete for our attention, don't we? We have idols that compete for exclusive wholehearted love. And the reality is, is that some of us can become very content with a half-hearted devotion to God and think we're doing just fine and think we can sail to the end of our lives without destroying our life or others' lives. And Solomon's life is a wake-up call to you. 
It is a wake-up call. Our Father has made us to give Him first and exclusive devotion and worship. We were made for that. We thrive with that. God's not an egomaniac. He knows that we thrive. We were created for that. We were designed for that. We flourish as friends. We flourish as moms and dads. We flourish as husbands and wives when we give him exclusive worship. This is what Solomon is getting after, or what he didn't do. What so he's getting after this verse. But ironically, he forgot. You know, you have a dark side. As Mackie mentioned, we all have a dark side. And sometimes I wonder if maybe Paul was thinking a little bit about that when on various times he repeated that I'm the least of all sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Recently, Tom took us through a, the digression that Paul made in his life. To where, you know, other, at the end he said, I'm just a chief of all sinners. As if Paul, I think, was aware of that dark side, the potential to make small compromises, to stray, to become spiritually dull. All the time thinking you're doing well. It's an incredibly easy trap for all of us to fall into. And then, by the way, for particularly for leaders, particularly for those who are maybe successful in various realms. As Christians, we can default into, the into this trap. We can default into this trap if we stop applying effort in our relationship with God, diligence in our relationship with God. Before we know it, when we take the our, our, our foot off the pedal in applying effort to our relationship with God, before we know it, we are tilting towards an illicit relationship. One or two drinks a night becomes three or four. Or the exhilaration of accomplishments and applause at work becomes a high you have to keep having. And it borders on obsession. My friend and fellow pastor, Chris Old, shared this verse at our pastor's conference last week to not only guard our hearts, but to keep them aflame. Paul wrote in Romans 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, that passion, that love, that flame. Keep it up serving the Lord. Is your zeal, your passion for Jesus, is it on the down or is it on the up? You know, we counter the going down through the deliberate cultivation of our spirit, practicing the spiritual disciplines, applying effort to them, and doing the same things as Jesus did. We do this as well in community. And I know this is scary. I know this is scary, but we do this in community. We guard our heart in community by inviting, actively inviting believers to speak into my life, not being passive about it, but actively inviting believers to speak into my life and by making them aware of my temptations, of my proclivities, of my dark side and inviting their help. 
you know, here's something that most of you can do this week. Maybe all of you who have the right kind of friend. Here's something that perhaps all of us can do this week. When you meet in the same gender setting, all men are all women. By the way, these are gatherings that we encourage in our church. They may be in one-on-one mentoring settings, or they may be breakouts in your small groups. And truly in our small groups, particularly when uh, men and women break out together, we are, we are discipling. We are forming Christ in one another through those times. We are discipling one another. We are causing spiritual growth in one another. You know, in one of those one-on-one gatherings or in one of those small group breakout gatherings of, of same gender, ask each member, where are you experiencing temptation in your life right now? Where are you experiencing temptation? Where is that on the borders of your heart? Where is that temptation coming? What is it? And how can we pray for you? We have done that as pastors together, different times. And really, it's a way that as pastors, we can protect one another as the scripture directs us to do in Acts chapter 20. Now, this kind of community, FYI, it's not seeking to uh, conform our behavior in pursuit of some ugly legalism. It's not, some, it's not developing some super narrow behavioral pattern so that everybody can fit in. Those are ugly parodies of what I'm talking about. You see, it is in what Solomon's life teaches us, it is holiness we are after. We are guarding our hearts so that we can love God more and become more like Jesus and flourish as believers, as friends, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as workers, wherever you're working, and as effective communicators of Jesus to to our community. But I just want to say we cannot do that alone. We cannot pursue holiness alone. We need a community to do it. So in conclusion, Solomon's story not only urges us to take our dark side seriously, it also reminds us that our sin or our failure will not be the end of things. It will not be the end of the story. It will not be the final word written. Because even in the judgment, even the judgment of Solomon signals hope. Return quickly with me to chapter 11, right where we left off. We just left off with those crushing words that God will tear the kingdom away from Solomon. Then this, verse 12 and 13. Try to catch this. Verse 12, chapter 11. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do this. I will not tear out your kingdom during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Do you see what's happening here? Did you catch this? We can just read right over this and not not even register. 
God had warned Solomon of the consequences of what would happen if he was faithless. If Solomon was serving some other God in some other ancient world, he would be what? He would be done. He would be toast based on what he did. At least the people would interpret it that way. Solomon deserved to be judged and he deserved to be cut off from any meaningful future. But notice this. This is how Dale Ralph Davis says it. I, I love this little phrase. God's judgment does not cancel God's promise. God's judgment does not cancel God's promise. This is promise over law. This is grace over sin. Even Solomon's construction of pagan temples does not obliterate God's grace and kindness. His line will continue through, though now, just one tribe. And in Solomon's descendants, in his physical descendants, that line will finally produce the king that will not stray, that will not fail, that will be the enduring king, that will be the, the, the final king, and that is the Messiah, Jesus. Dale, again, Dale Ralph Davis finds a precious truth encased in this story. Again, I love this phrase, affliction, but not abandonment. Affliction, but not abandonment. What God is saying here is that because of his promise, Solomon, not because of your performance, but because of my promise, I am still going to bring the Messiah. The rays of hope flicker from behind the clouds of judgment, and you and I also can rejoice and be inspired to new levels of faithfulness because, friends, God loves you the same way through Jesus. He loves us the same way through Jesus. Nick and the band, you can come on up. Let me go ahead and pray, and uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to celebrate this kind of promise-keeping God, right? Yahweh means promise keeper, promise maker, covenant God. And that's what Jesus said when on the, the, the night of his death, he said, I'm making to you a new covenant, a new promise through my blood. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you in Jesus' name that our sin does not cancel your promise. And Father, thank you that though we might experience affliction, you will not abandon us. And we pray, Father, that we confess to you, Lord, that we have loved other things. We confess to you, Father, that we've not loved you well. We confess to you, Father, the times we've not given exclusive, wholehearted love to you. We confess, Lord, the times we've been casual and half-hearted in our devotion. We confess to you, Lord, like Calvin said, that our hearts are idol-making factories. We are always creating some new idol to give our highest, ultimate worth and esteem to. Forgive us, please, Father. Forgive us, please. 
show us and teach us and restore us to wholehearted, exclusive love for you. Lord, may we never lack in spiritual passion and fervor. May our hearts be set anew aflame for you, not in some legalism or performance, but hearts now that have been made free through grace. Help us to every day abide and remain and see Jesus. We thank you for the bread representing your body. We thank you for the cup representing the blood you shed for the forgiveness of sins. We take this in joy. We take it in joy that our sin did not cancel the promise. Amen. Go ahead and take the bread and cup anytime as we sing together.
if you're at one of those places this morning, as Nick said earlier, if you're at one of those even though moments, even though I walk through the valley of death, we would invite you to come down front and to receive prayer from a member of our prayer team, to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you. Or you may turn to a friend or a small group leader. Or if you're in a place where that spiritual zeal is going south and you find that your heart has grown dull, it's grown insensitive to the things of God, you keep showing up, you keep doing things, you keep doing activities, but the love, the fountainhead is all gone. You're trying to find a way to have that spiritual zeal restored back, a passion renewed for love for Christ. Again, I invite you as well, come down forward so that the Holy Spirit can minister to you. We can pray for you. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. We get so used to saying that I think we've sometimes just becomes cliche. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is our way of doing what Jesus did. When Jesus after he spoke of the kingdom of God, powerful things would happen. And he would heal, and relationships would be mended, and, and the lost would be saved, and those that are alone would get connected. Prayer is our way of saying the power of God can come into your life in Jesus' name and in Jesus' authority. Demons would flee at his name. Evil flees at his name. We sang earlier, at the sound of his great name. Where is that place today where you're experiencing temptation and need the Holy Spirit and need the power of God to minister to you? So, come up front. Allow one of us to pray for you. Turn to a friend. Turn to a small group leader. This is a house of prayer. This is where the presence of God is in a special way when two or three gather, right, in his name. How about a final blessing? May Christ go before you. May Christ go behind you. May Christ be above you, uh, above you, and may Christ be below you. May Christ be with you, and may Christ, the hope of glory, be in you and live his life through you. Amen. Amen. Let's go and serve.